0: I, I appreciate the pastor, I appreciate um, him engaging these topics, and uh, last week we, with the teachers, we kind of laid out the program. I've had several teachers come to me and say, Randy, how am I supposed to teach these, these uh, this series? And I just said, I don't know, <laughs> but uh, we'll, we'll get through it. I wanna, um, how many people here tonight believe that there's a Santa Claus? I, I want to introduce him. if you could raise your hand. <laughs> that, that's my brother-in-law, and I had to do that. OK. Appreciate my father while being here tonight, and, and Taylor. good to see you tonight as well. If you would take your Bibles and turn to Colossians 2, Colossians 2, and we'll be reading six through eight, Colossians two, six through eight. About a year and a half ago, I spoke in a church, and it was on a, uh, it was on a weeknight, and I was sick, running a, a pretty high fever, had to drive about five hours to get to the church. I got there, and um, I mean, it was rough. I was having a really rough time, nothing like tonight. And I got up on the platform, and I, I got about five or ten minutes through my message, and I looked down. And I had two different pairs of shoes on. (laughs) And at that point, what do you do? (laughs) Don't look at your shoes anymore, just keep going. So I did check my shoes tonight. I do have the same pair on, so I feel pretty good tonight. If you'll go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word, Colossians 2, 6 through 8. Colossians 2, 6 through 8. And this is what it says. "As As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. As ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. After the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity, Lord, that we can come and study your word. Lord, I... um, I come, Lord, humbly uh, to your throne, Lord. Just ask you for your mercy and your grace tonight, Lord. I I pray, Lord, that um, I would not say anything that um, you would not have me say. I pray, Lord, that um, I will be clear in this message tonight. Lord, I just pray that you'll move the hearts of your people and also the lost. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The lessons that we're going to be uh, going through the next few weeks is called Worldview. It's a biblical worldview. And a worldview is really a lens that we use to make life's decisions. Um, And it affects basically every aspect of our life. Every time that a student sits in a classroom, they're trying on a pair of glasses, and they're looking through, and they're making decisions based on a worldview. Every time we watch television, we're trying on a pair of glasses. (laughs) Some of us try on other pairs of glasses to see the TV. (laughs) Every time we watch the news, um, every time we pick up a book and read it, every time we spend time with friends, it's a worldview that we have a perspective on. I could talk to many of you about different subjects, and you have an opinion on them. Well, you base that opinion... Came from some worldview that you have picked up in your lifetime. We use our six senses in this worldview. In fact, um, what we see, what we touch, what we feel, what we taste, what we smell, the environment around us, it also includes things such as education, culture, games, movies, music, families, and also. It has to do with our own deceitful heart. In fact, in Jeremiah 17, 9, it says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, and who can know it? 67% of college professors approve of alternate lifestyles. 84% of college professors approve of abortion. 65% of professors embrace socialist, communist ideology. 88% of students from Christian homes, deny their faith before they graduate from college. It's all based on a worldview. 91% of students from evangelical churches, whatever that means this week, do not believe in an absolute moral truth. You see, if we want an accurate, accurate worldview, that we must first look through a clear, undistorted lens And the only lens that we can look through to get an undistorted worldview is the Word of God. Many times, Christians will try on different pairs of glasses for the occasion. In fact, you'll come to church and say, okay, I've got to put on the Christian worldview, so I'll put on these pair of glasses and play the Christian worldview tonight. And then when you leave here, you go try on another pair of glasses that may be, a, um, may be one of a worldly worldview. When you go to work, does people know that you have a worldview of biblical Christianity? When you go to school, does people know that? You see, <clears throat> the topic I'm going to talk tonight about, I'm going to preach tonight on, is a topic that's not real popular. Um, it is a difficult topic to discuss this subject that I'm going I'm to speak on tonight, I could probably spend about 10 hours um, speaking on this subject, but I'm not going to do that tonight. I've got it reduced down to two hours. So <laughs> one of the most prevalent worldviews that we have is alcohol. You say, oh boy, here's another alcohol one. Yep, you're going to get another alcohol one, but I hope you get it from a perspective that you walk away here tonight saying I get this I understand this and this makes sense and it should be a conviction of mine when I leave here tonight. Over a third of all traffic fatalities are attributed to drinking. That's all dependent on the study. Over a thousand people each year die of alcohol related diseases. Alcohol causes things such as liver failure, stomach cancer, brain damage, Sexually transmitted diseases. In fact, um, the CDC says that actually over 200 diseases are caused by alcohol consumption. Over 200 diseases. Over 10,000 fatalities each year are caused by drug driving. Alcohol affects just about every family that I know of. It affects just about every family in some way, shape, or form. Um, even in this church, and I'm not talking about directly, but perhaps even indirectly. 99.7% of all violent felonies were committed with alcohol or drug use during the time that they committed the felony. Think about that for one moment. Alcohol costs the taxpayer $249 billion a year. I'm going to give you a reference point on that tonight. The estimate to build a wall south of our border here is only five billion dollars. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to be political no. tonight. But it's, hopefully, it'll give you a reference point of how much 249 billion dollars consists of. The lives and cost of alcohol is not <clears throat> what this message is about. I'm not all those topics that I just mentioned. The statistics. I'm not going to talk about those tonight, because I actually already did. <laughs> what I want to preach tonight about is, what does the Bible actually say about alcohol? And I'm going to give you um, a perspective, and I'm going to tell you where this came from in my own personal life. When my, when my kids were young, and again, I grew up in, in independent, fundamental, Baptist um, Family independent Baptist churches, my whole entire life, um, abstinence from drinking was not an option. it was that is what you do. You abstain from 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 any type of alcohol beverages you didn't you didn 't go to places that 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 served them you didn 't go to bars that were specific to that and that that was how I grew up. I went to school, got a Bible. Um, actually major or minored in, in a Bible, that was kind of the requirement at the school. And alcohol was preached on, but it was never preached on to the level that I really I really walked away saying, this is this is something I understand and I I, I fully can 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 defend it. And it was it was in an independent Baptist church, a uh, pastor had preached on alcohol one morning and I and my kids were were young. And I walked away scratching my head thinking, you know, this is going to be an issue that I've got to be able to to defend. Because no more in our society, it's you don't do this, you don't do this. It's why don't you do this? And if I have a biblical worldview, then how can I defend this issue? And one of the quickest things I did is I, I quickly, uh, there was a, uh, one of the assistant pastor had a Greek lexicon. He was trying to study Greek. And I'm just being real blunt and clear, I don't know Greek. I don't know Hebrew. I'm really working on my English. So just to let you know that. But I, I grabbed his lexicon, and I, I flipped over to um, some, some verses that were referring to alcohol. And I, I, I flipped through them, and, and the, that particular Greek word was the same Greek word that Jesus turned water into wine. And I thought, okay, wait a second. So this one that says you need to abstain from it is the same word that the one that Jesus turned water into wine. So I want to go through that tonight. This is, this is heavy. I'm going to go through a lot of verses tonight, not nearly the verses that God talks about in his word, but I'm going to touch and highlight on those issues tonight because I think it's important for us to be able to walk away saying, not only is, is my position, I understand the position of this body of believers, this church, but I also understand what God's word says about it, and it is in line with it. If you go to Proverbs 23.31, and I'm going to whip these out fast. You can write them down. You can try to, um, you can try to follow. But Proverbs 23.31, this is what it says. And these are the things that I, were, I was personally struggling with. Not that I was drinking, but I just wanted to understand and be able to defend it. Because there's one day that my kids were going to get to, to teenage years, and I had to be able to defend this one way or the other. And when I took, started working on this study, it was a self-study. I did it on a very unbiased, unprejudiced position. I didn't take it on a position that, okay, I'm going to find everything that says you can't drink. And I'm not going to take it on a position that says you can drink. I'm going to be as unbiased as I can because I need to know beyond a shadow of a doubt what God's word says specifically about this. And this is the self-study that I came up with, or just a little piece of it, and I want to share with you tonight. Proverbs uh, 23, 31. It says, Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it is given his color in the cup, when it moveth itself all right. Now, I thought about that, and I thought, okay. Now, when I say a, a particular writer, understand, when I'm talking about a particular writer in the Word of God, what I'm referring to is it's an inspired Word of God. But Solomon wrote this under the inspiration of the word of God. This is God breathed. He wrote it. So when I say Solomon, I'm, I'm referring to this is what he penned under the inspiration of God's word. And Proverbs 23:31 says, look not upon the wine. Okay, and I thought to myself, okay, this is clearly that I'm not supposed to look at this stuff. I mean, it is that bad. It is that evil. I can't look at it. And then I went to Proverbs 31, 4 through 5. Proverbs 31, 4 through 5, and it says this. It's not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine, nor is for princes princes strong drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. And then I thought to myself, okay, it's not for kings. Now, King Solomon wrote this, and he said it wasn't for kings. Well, guess who the King of Kings is and the Lord of Lords? It's my Savior. Amen. Now, then I thought to myself, okay, this is a problem, because if he turned this stuff into wine, that, that's, that's a contradictory. He's contradicting himself if he did that. Um, so I'm thinking, okay, what, there's obviously a difference here. What's going on here? When you study this issue, you must study it with a subject in God's Word in the context of Scripture. Um, I will tell you that many arguments today about condoning the use of alcohol in the Bible comes from modern English translations of the bible now i didn 't know that this is the, again i 'm I'm, I'm somebody that 's walking into this, has no idea what god 's word really says about it, but I want to figure it out and that was one of the things I found out. I started taking translations, started looking at different translations I started looking at commentaries from the translators of these other English translations. And what I found out is these guys were, had an opinion that wasn't based on the Word of God. And then when you read these English translations, you're like, okay, now I understand why these Eng- Eng- some of these English translations are so perverted because it's not clearly showing what the issues are with, with this subject. If you go back to the 1700s, how many can go back? There's a few I see tonight that can do that. If you go back to the 1700s, 1800s, and you go back to, for example, the Webster's Dictionary, this is what the Webster's Dictionary would say when you define alcohol, I'm sorry, when you define the word wine. It is referring to an unfermented grape juice or of alcoholic nature. That's back in the 1700s. That is is what wine was referred to. It could either be an alcoholic or it could be a grape juice. And I thought, okay, well that's interesting. In fact, listen to this. The generic term for wine is in Hebrew, Chaldean, Greek, Syrian, Arabic, Latin, and English words. Had no idea. Think about that. It's not just English words, but it was in all those other, all, all those other um, languages. Then I found out that it could mean boiled juice, or it could be of a fermented nature, or it could be a fresh juice. If I was go to the grocery store, and I walked up, I, I went to the fresh produce aisle, and I said, um, "Do y'all have any? Do y'all have any cider?" What do you think I'm going, to get? I'm going to get? I'm going to get probably fresh cider, especially if I'm in the produce side. OK? If it's about this time of year, or maybe another month or two, and I go up to the, the same store, and I ask for, go up to, in the produce section, I say, do you all have any cider? They say, well, we don't have any fresh cider, but we do have cider, and it's right there. And you'll find a, you know, a big uh, jug of it. In a, in a glass jug that's been sealed and it's it's obviously been pasteurized of some way. It, it's it's been canned. In fact, when I was uh, growing up, uh, we had Concord grapes. Lots of them. We had a we had a vineyard of these things, and uh, my mom would make um, she would can grape juice i mean that's that's what she would do, and it was i mean it was never it was grape juice that's what we can and it was it was a process in which it was she did that in fact, she boiled it down um, and then when we had the grape juice, she would pour it and we would mix it usually with fifty fifty water and um, it was it was absolutely awesome so if I was to also go to the same store and i'd say. I'd go over to the, the beer and alcohol section or I, I would say, do y'all have any cider? What kind of cider would you get? you get hard cider, wouldn't you? So the, the, the word that we actually use for cider could actually be, mean three different things. You see what I'm saying? Well, in the translation of God's word, wine was translated um, in different forms. And when you study this, this subject, number one, you keep it in context. You have to read it in context what the Word of God says. If you read this in context and you go through verse, verse, th- verse through verse about wine in the Bible, what you'll find out is God strongly condemns fermented wine throughout the Scripture. He strongly condemns it. There are four words. There's actually a few more, but I am going to just dwell on the four words tonight, and I'll probably pick up one more phrase later. If you deal with four words in the Bible, there's two. There's actually three Hebrew words and a Greek word. Number one, and again, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I'm not a Greek scholar. So when I pronounce these, if you are, please don't laugh right now. You can laugh a little later. Hebrew, one of the words is yawin, y-a-y-i-n. It is referred throughout Scripture as a fermented or unfermented grape juice. The second one is tarash. It's a Hebrew word as well in the Old Testament. It's a storable product such as uh, pressed grape juice. That's what it's normally referred to when that is mentioned. Another Greek word, I'm sorry, Hebrew word is shakar. Shakar. is referring to a lot of times uh, the uh, King James uh, will translate that as strong drink It is actually um, it's, it's, it means other fermented drink or it can mean fermented grain drink from um, from grain so there are people that say that 's referring to a beer because it 's a grain that 's been fermented so a strong drink is basically something that has been um, it from a type of a grain. Now, when I was growing up, this is what I was told. I was told that um, in the Bible that they, they did have alcohol, but they, it was very, very slightly, a very, very low content alcohol to preserve it. That's what I was told. That's what, you know, anytime I would challenge this question, that's what I was told. I thought, okay, that makes sense. And then they said, well, strong drink is when they didn't cut it down when they didn't cut down the the fermented juice. And it's entirely not true. It's not what the Bible teaches at all. And again, it's something that I I discovered. A Greek word of oinos can be referred to fermented or unfermented grape juice. If you go to Micah, you will see in Micah, actually Micah 6.15. It's a good example of two words that are actually used for wine. And this is what it says, Micah 6.15, Thou shalt sow, but thou shalt not reap. Thou shalt tread the olives, but thou shalt not anoint thee with oil. And sweet wine, but thou shalt not drink wine. Think about that. That sounds kind of like a contradictory. And what it's referring to is in one case, the sweet wine is tarash, and the thou shalt not drink wine is referring to a fermented juice. Tarash throughout Scripture is, is normally used as an unfermented grapes or grape juice to expe- express God's blessing. You can go to places such as Genesis 27, 28, Zechariah 9, 17, Deuteronomy 33, 28, Joel 2, 18 through 19, Jeremiah 31, uh, 10 through uh, 12. It's referring to an unfermented grape juice. It's referring to, and it's a, a sign of, of God's blessing on his people. So it's a sign of blessing, but it's a grape juice. It's a fresh grape juice. It's not referring to something that is fermented. In Proverbs 23, uh, 32, it says this as, um, well, let me, it, it talks about how fermented grape juice is a mocker, and it bites like a serpent. Good. That wine is is Yahweh, and it it's um, it's it's a fermented grape juice that, that it's referring to. But if, then, if you go to Leviticus, you'll find wine as an unfermented grape juice because God forbade any leaven or our fermented product at all, and that's in Leviticus 2.11. 2 so we would have to conclude that the word wine and the Hebrew words, and we're getting ready to talk about the Greek words, there are different meanings for that same word and one is for fermented, and the other is for unfermented. There is always a command to abstain from the use of a fermented wine. And I want to go to the New Testament for a minute. I'm going to go to Ephesians, Ephesians 5.18. This is what it says, And be not drunk with wine, where it is in excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And I'm hitting the subjects, and I'm hitting the topics that nobody... I'm not saying nobody, but a lot of people won't don't want to really deal with because it's kind of you know th- this is the argument that seculars have on this particular topic. And be not drunk with wine, whereas in excess. In other words, um, don't be drunk because it's a, it's an excess, but be filled with the spirit. And that's the how that's preached. I've heard it preached that way many times, not from this pulpit, but I have heard it preached that way. And I want to explain that. I want to go in detail and try to explain this. Many take that word excess as the wine being the issue, but it's getting drunk. However, the word excess can, can actually also be translated as something like as debauchery. So what it's actually referring to is, and be not drunk with wine, where wine is a debauchery. Wine is Excess wine is the problem it's not getting drunk it's wine is the problem and in this verse it's talking about alcoholic wine is the problem there's other there's other uh, and and if you go back to the old testament I'll jump into the new testament again in a minute but if you go back to the old testament in proverbs 23:32 32, Deuteronomy 32:33 32, Isaiah 19:11 Psalm 60:11 it talks very clearly about Fermented wine, fermented product, uh, causing sickness. You see, the things that are going on in society today is nothing new under the sun. It's always been an issue, and God's Word has been talking about this for, for many years. In Proverbs 31, 4 through 5, it talks about disqualifications of civil service uh, servants if they're using an alcoholic a drink or beverage. It dis- disqualifies church service in Levit- Leviticus um, uh, 10 nine through eleven ezekiel 44 23. Um and also in both in First Timothy three uh, two through three, and Titus one five through seven. and this is a, a term, another one that is of people make it controversial, and I want to talk about that, and this is what it says it says, "And be not um, not given to much wine." Not given too much wine, and the question I would have is, how much is too much wine? Well, it's, it's it's enough wine. I'm talking about alcohol now. How much alcohol is too much alcohol? What is the, what is in, from a, from a philosophical standpoint, what is that? What does that look like? Well, there was a there was a study done years ago where professional, professional race car drivers took one glass, one shot, one beer, or one glass of wine, and they drove an obstacle course before they drank anything, and then they drove the obstacle course after they had had that one drink. And every single one of them was impaired. So let me ask this question. If one drink impairs you, how can that be of God? How can you be filled with the Holy Spirit when it impairs your thought process? How can that happen? It disqualifies church service. And I want to talk about this one in, in, um, in 1 Timothy 2-3 and Titus 1, 5-7. This is what it says. It, it talks about not being given too much wine. And, you know, the question is, well, I'm not given too much wine because, you know, I made it home last night. So it couldn't have been too much wine because I made it home. Well, this is a Greek word. There's two Greek words in this passage. In both of these passages, and this is what the Greek word, the words mean. One is nephalias, and it's talking about, the, the word is interpreted as abstinent. Okay? Now, how much is, is too much? It's abstinent. It's completely doing away with it. And the other word is meat that word is translated not near wine Okay, so for a church leader what it's saying is it's not only abstaining from the alcohol but it's also referring to you, you don't need to hang out in places of that nature, you don't need to hang out in bars Is what it's referring to um, so when you see it in that context you're thinking okay wow it's not only important for a church leader not to be involved in, in alcohol, but it also is important for him not to be associated with alcohol in any way. One of the arguments that I've heard my whole life is um, people in the ancient times had no way of, of knowing how to preserve uh, a grape juice. So all this wine in the, in the Bible is basically has to be referring to some type of alcoholic product. In fact, many English translations of the Bible, the translators, have given commentaries on that issue I just mentioned. And by the way, majority of the churches in America um, have, have moved to that position. In fact, during the early church period, even Protestant churches believed that alcohol Um, in any way was, was not condoned in any place in the church. Protestant churches, I'm not talking about independent Baptist churches, I'm talking about Protestant churches. I'm talking about, you ready for this one? I'm talking about the Catholic church. The Catholic church did not condone alcohol in its early period. What happened? Well, I'll tell you what happened. It became an issue that liberal theologians got a hold of and they started twisting the scripture and they started moving it and moving it and moving it to where we are today. I could go to the majority of churches in this town and this debate I would be having on alcohol, every, just about every one of them would take a position um, that alcohol is okay as long as you're not getting wasted. I mean drunk, whatever that means. So how did, they, how did they preserve it? That was the question I had. And what I found out is historians that wrote during the period before Christ, as many as 250 B.C., before Christ, one of the writers by the name of Cato explained how they were preserving juice and not an alcoholic beverage. In 250 B.C., this this thing about um, about preserving about Pasteur Louis Pasteur, you know about about what he did in the early period of the United States of how he came up with a pasteurization process. That wasn't a new invention at all. In fact, the Jews actually had a process in which they preserved this stuff. This is how they would do it. And see if this sounds familiar. How many people can in here? How many people like to can? I didn't say kick the can, I said can. <laughs> well, this is how they would do it. They would take the grape juice they would take the grapes, they would smash the grapes, they would pull out the skins out of the grapes, because the skins had a bacteria in it. And if you left the skins in that grape, it would actually cause it to ferment or rot very quickly. So they would pull all the skins out, they would smash the grapes up, and um, then they would boil the grape juice. They t- now they have just uh, fresh grape juice. And what they would do is they would boil it. And they would boil it down, and they would get a very thick, thick, um, syrupy um, juice out of it. It's what they would do. When they boiled it down... Just prior to putting in a vessel, they would would actually sterilize the vessel by either boiling the vessel. Does this sound familiar? Sounds like a canning process to me. I don't know. Or they would actually use a gas that would kill the bacteria in the vessel. That's how they would do it. I mean, this was high tech. Think about that. Then they would put... The grape juice, in this thick grape juice, they would put it into the vessel, this this sterilized vessel, and then they would place it in cold water. And they would put, just before they put it in cold water, they would put a layer of thick oil on it or beeswax. And then they would put it in uh, cold water and it would preserve it for... um, it would actually preserve it for a number of years. That's what they would do. Now, how do I know that? You're thinking, because again, I'm this skeptic. I'm this guy that's got to figure out what happened, and and is this really real? Well, a, a historian during the period of Jesus talked about this process, and his name was Josephus. He actually talked specifically about this process. Another one talked about the process as well. His name was Philo. um, About this process I'm describing. And Cato came up with a description of a very similar process. And another account, Josephus was talking about the siege of um, the Rome had on Masada. How many people know that? That's what I was afraid of. We'll keep going though. Um, It was a a siege right after the time of Christ, right after that. And um, Rome took siege of a Jewish town. Well, that siege went on for two to three months. And during that time, he gave account, Josephus gave an account of grape juice. And he also gave an account of how important and how sacred it was to have Grape juice instead of um, a an alcoholic product, because um, of the priests that were inside that city during that siege. So again, if if they there was they had to be a way of them doing that, and then again he explained that in the process I just described. They also would use pine tar on occasion to preserve, to also for the top to preserve the grape juice. And then when they were ready to drink it, um, they would would remove that, they would pour it, they would mix it with water, and that was their grape juice. Isaiah says this, And gladness is taken away, and joy out of the plentiful field. This is Isaiah 16.10, I'm sorry. And gladness is taken away, and joy out of the plentiful field. In the vineyards, there shall be no singing, neither shall there be shouting. The treaders shall tread out no wine in their presses. I have made their vintage, shouting to cease. Now, how do you tread out alcohol out of a grape, out of a wine press? How do you do that? You can't. It's impossible. Um, And that completely, that particular verse absolutely destroys people that says that wine was the issue, was the only thing, was intoxicating um, all the way through Scripture. And that, that would be one verse that would verify that. One of the things that, that, that is, is talked about a lot today, when you talk about wine with a Christian, or a new Christian, or somebody that isn't a Christian that doesn't have a clue, the first thing they'll throw at you is, well, Jesus turned water into wine. I mean, you know, what's, what's the big deal? Well, in John 2, 1 through 11 is the account of that issue. Many Christians today, they argue that Jesus was a moderate drinker and a proof of alcohol in moderation. Christ's miracle transformation of water into wine at the wedding of Cana is used um, as evidence, as we think, of sanctioning the use of alcohol and beverages. They argue that Jesus produced between 100 and 120 and 160 gallons of high-quality alcoholic wine for a wedding party and the guests of Cana. And let's look at that. Is it, I mean, if, if all through Scripture, God condones the use of alcoholic beverage, why in the world, and Jesus is the king of kings, why in the world would he turn water into an alcoholic beverage? Why would he do that? This doesn't make logical sense. In fact, it's contrary to God's word. And that was the, that would be the big issue. It's contradicting God's word. So what was it, and is that true? He turned water, basically, into fresh, unfermented juice. Unlike the old juice that had been boiled down into this configuration. When they said, why did you save the grapes? Why did you save the juice? The good stuff, for last. Okay? Now, let me... Let me ask you something. I don't want to. I want. I don't want anybody reminiscing here. But if somebody's drinking alcohol and it's it's late into the, the night when they're drinking alcohol, do you really taste the stuff about you know about two hours into the into the uh, into the event into drinking? I mean, do you? And I can answer that. No, you don't. I mean, why would? How could they taste that alcohol to be better than the alcohol they've been drinking for the past three hours? You see what I'm saying? That makes no logical sense. Well, the Greek word there, the term "well drunk," because that's one of them that they say. Say, well, they said that they were well drunk, and then they question that. Well, what is the word "well drunk"? Is it referring to being drunk? Is it referring to drinking to be, to being you know inebriated? Well, the Greek word there that is used in well drunk, um, it, it doesn't support that at all. It doesn't, it doesn't support that in any way. Basically, they had been drinking grape juice for a long time, and it was old grape juice. And what I mean by old grape juice is it was the type of grape juice um, that was used when they would boil it down and they would cut it down. Now, if you've had fresh-squeezed orange juice, and you've had orange juice in a can, which one would you prefer? You, you prefer the fresh juice. This is what Jesus is referring to here. Again, why would the King of Kings and Lord of Lords provide alcohol to a party with young people, with kids, with children, and with adults? Why would he do that? Well, he didn't. He didn't. Another verse that's, that's, that comes up many times is "The new wine and the new wine skins." Um, th- this was, is another argument that I hear all the time. It's found in Luke 5:37 and 38, Mark 2:22. And this is what it's uh, referring to, is, is it talks about, "Would you not put um, new wine in new wine skins?" And the old wineskins, l- let me explain that really quickly and easy. New wineskins or old wineskins cannot hold an alcoholic beverage. It cannot hold it. Scientifically, both of them would burst. Okay? It can't hold it. It wasn't referring to alcohol. It was referring to grape juice, one being fresh, the other being not. That's what it's referring to. Um, and again, it's, it's a logical argument. It would not work. Um, the refer, the, in Luke 5.39, where Jesus refers to old wine, was better referring to a fermented wine. Many people say that. That's absolutely not true. Again, he was referring to old wine being old juice, canned juice. Uh, juice that had, been, that had been boiled down and preserved as, as contrasted to a fresh juice. Then in Matthew eleven nineteen 19, and Luke 7, 34, 35, there's an account of Jesus. Um, and, and one of the, the comments is, well, Jesus, I mean, he was a drunkard, and he was a glutton, because, you know, it's referring to this. Well, let's take a look at that. Um, and, and a lot of people use this verse, again, to, to, to justify drinking alcohol. There's two issues in this argument. Um, to infer that Jesus must have drunk wine because his, critic, because his critics accuse him of being drunkard means to accept all, all comments like that from your enemies as truth. Does that make sense? For example, I have been called numerous things um, being in the political world. I mean, many of them I couldn't mention here tonight. Does that make it so because I get accused of that? That's the same issue here. They accused him of it uh, because you know what? He went to the lost, he went to the lost, and he and 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 so they saw that because he wasn't hanging out with the rich folk like all the other Pharisees and, and Sadducees were doing. Then they would make that assumption, they would make that comment, Well, he must be a, a drunk and a glutton because that's what he's hanging out with. Then we go into communion. Um, communion, majority of communion today by churches, other than um, independent Baptist churches or some other denomination of churches, but there are very, very few. Majority of communion today, they're using alcohol. Majority of them. And because the argument is that Jesus used alcohol and wine at the communion supper, the word that is used in the communion is the fruit of the vine. And The fruit of the vine doesn't talk about anything at all being alcoholic. If you go back to the Greek and look at that phrase, fruit of the vine, I'm not going to pronounce it because I can't. It was used to designate a fresh, unfermented grape juice. It had absolutely 100% nothing to do with a fermentation process. Because, see, fermentation was was a sign of decay and death throughout scripture. And fresh juice was significant to a new life through the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. It is impossible for Jesus to have used communion and to use wine like that. I'm going to move on. I'm, I'm running out of time. I only got, uh, looks like, about an hour and a half left. In, in Acts, it talks about new wine. Acts 2.13. And it's the word they were mocking um, they were basically saying, "This is in acts two thirteen This is um, at, right after Pentecost. This is when you know thousands of people were getting saved. Um, they were speaking in another language, unbeknownst to their original tongue, so everybody could understand them. Um, that's a side note. So they started mocking them, and they said, These men are full of new wine okay well they were re- they and, and if you look through the scripture, they never refuted that comment. Well, number one is, I don't think that they, they had to refute that comment. And it was a joke, it was a sarcasm. They were, they were full of new wine. The comment being, oh, these guys are drunk on, on grape juice. It was sarcasm because they knew that they did not drink alcoholic beverage. And then if you go on to Corinthians, and I'm going to close with this one. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 20 through 21. 1 Corinthians 11, 20 through 21. This is the account where Paul was correcting the church at Corinth. Now, let's back up real quickly and talk about the church at Corinth. Church at Corinth was made up of new Christians. It was one of the most ungodly cities um, in, the, in, the time of, uh, in that era. It was super ungodly. I mean, there were things going on that that were, um, they had um, prostitutes. The new church really didn't know how to handle some of that. And some of the things that they were doing is they were bringing in some of these worldly things into this church of Corinth. And so pretty much the entire 1 Corinthians, Paul is trying to correct a a lot of these problems that were going on in this church. And one of the things that he was talking about is he was talking about the practices of the Lord's Supper. And this is what um, he was referring to is he was talking about um, how people in the pastor, every time that we do communion, the pastor goes to this verse, and he talks in detail about this verse, about why it's so sacred, why it's such a big um, issue in the church because how Christ looks at this. Um, as taking communion because it's a symbolism of what Christ did for us at Calvary. It's symbolism of 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 the the blood that he shed for us. It's symbolism of of what he did and how he died on the cross for us. And so Paul, and I'm paraphrasing this, he's like, um, you guys are you guys are are getting drunk. You guys are 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 eating it? You've turned this thing into a party. Again, this is a major paraphrase. You can use uh, the Randy Osborne translation here. And and Paul comes back and he says, "Do you not have houses? Do you not have houses to eat and get drunk in?" The fact is. Paul was not referring to getting drunk. He was not talking about using alcoholic beverage to get drunk. What Paul was actually referring to is they were indulging into this. They were were using excessive indulging in eating and drinking. He was at no time referring to them getting drunk with alcoholic beverage. If Paul would, if that was the case... Paul would have addressed it. He would have addressed it in what they're doing. But again, if you go back to the word that's used about, about drinking, about drunk, drunkenness, it's referring to excessive. It's not referring specifically at all to, to alcoholic beverage. I'm going to close with this. I'm going to tell you a, a story. It's a personal story. It's a true one. Most people in this church most people in America can talk, can, can say, alcohol in some way, shape, or form has affected my family or my life in some way, shape, or form. Everybody can say that. Um, for, 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 for some example, my, my great-grandfather, um, he, was, um, he was drunk, he walked across a bridge, and he fell, and, fell in and drowned. They didn't find him till the next day. Um, there, there, was, there has been alcohol, um, not in my immediate, but in my past family. It is a big deal because I want to be able to defend this with the word of God, and I want to be able to take it to children, to, to, to young people, and defend this and say, look, alcohol was never condoned in the Bible. In fact, God spoke very, very um, a lot about it, but he spoke very negatively about it. In fact, it was, it was a sin. Several years ago, I was a a member of an independent Baptist church at the time. And we we went in, sat down. We got burned a couple times with with theological problems, issues, within independent Baptist churches, by the way. So we sat down with this pastor, and we talked in detail about everything that you can think of, Uh, all the ologies, um, all the everything that you can imagine, we we thought we covered them all, and one of them was alcohol because alcohol became a big deal. It became something that a lot of churches would brush off. In fact, um, a lot of Christian universities um, are now starting to ignore this issue. Um, they won't they won't take a position either way on it. And I talked to the pastor about it, and he's like. He kind of, he kind of, he didn't really, he didn't condemn it and he didn't condone it. But finally he said this, he said, I will never condone alcohol in any way in this church, in this pulpit. And I said, okay, okay, I, 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 will, I will go with that. And let me say something about this. I, I We have never sat down with, with this pastor ask all the questions I'm always concerned about. Isn't that interesting? Because I don't have to. He, he's dead on in every one of them. So I sat and I talked to him and he told me this. And, and so things, I mean, a year, at least a year went on. And one day in a church service, he got into Jesus turning water into wine. He went to that verse. Um, he, was, he was actually a very, a very good um, orator. And he got to that verse, and he basically said, "Jesus turned water into an alcoholic beverage it was it was actually alcohol, and he went on to say um, that it 's not a big deal if you know if somebody in the church was to drink, you know the big issue is is you don 't want to get drunk and he went on to that, and I, I literally just about fell out of my pew because my kids are sitting right there, and i 'm like, Oh my goodness, Houston." We have a problem. So I, I thought, OK, wh- Randy, what are you going to do? Wh- what are you going to do? And the first thing I did is um, we, we went home, and we had a long discussion. We don't talk about what's said in the pulpit, but that night, that day, we did. We didn't have a choice. And we, we went on to detail, and we end up um, doing a study with our kids on this issue because it was so critically important. Well, that, that very same day, that morning, there was a new Christian, a newly converted Christian that was there, that was an alcoholic. Um, God had saved him from that, but he understood the challenges that he was going to have because he was an alcoholic. He understood it. And I have never seen such tear in a face of somebody. I, I've never... I, 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 I can never forget that face. He was terrified. And he went into me and just... He just to start mumbling and I... I, I and, and said, I, I can't... I, I can't do this. I, I got to get out of here. I can't... I can't be... And I was like, okay, calm down. What's, what's going on? He said, I, I, I'm an alcoholic. I, I can't... I can't be around this. I can't have somebody telling me. I've been fighting this thing for years. And I'm not going to let somebody uh, do this. And... Uh, and he, I mean, he couldn't go to a restaurant that was even, you know, anywhere near something. He just, he knew he had to draw the line because he had a serious, serious problem with that. And I, I thought about that throughout the years. And a lot of times, Christians will go to, well, it's a testimony saying, if you're going to cause somebody to fall, I mean, that alone should fix a lot of issues. But, but apparently that wouldn't. Didn't work. Make a long story short, we, we ended up leaving the church of, over that because I couldn't I couldn't condone it. I couldn't I couldn't have my kids uh, growing up in an environment that that took that position. And I'm gonna i to say this tonight. There's there's two things that I I wanna I wanna close with. I went through a bunch of Bible verses, a lot of stuff. There are literally hours and hours of this, but I wanted to share a little bit of this with you. Because it is a worldview that the church is losing. In fact, the church, I believe, and I'm I'm making a general statement. And I'm not talking about this local church, but I'm talking about the local bodies all over all over the United States and, quite honestly, the world, is the cause of alcoholism going up to a high um, a, a high rate. Um, it is. It is. It's it's the death rate. It's because there's no moral worldview anymore of this issue. It's gone. And we as Christians have got to not only know what you believe, but you have to be able to defend it. You have to be able to defend it. And I'm going to ask this tonight. I'm going to go ahead and ask the the pastor if he would start coming up. I'm going to go ahead and have a word of prayer, and, and I'm going to have, let him, take the invitation, but there's two two things that I would ask you tonight. You might say, Randy, this doesn't have a lot to do with me personally. No, but it has a lot to do with people in your family, people around you, your friends. It has a lot to do with them. People are dying and going to hell because of this real issue. And I want you to if there's something, somebody's led some, or if God has led something on your heart, I want you to come down. I just want you to pray. Just take a moment and just pray about that. If God is dealing with that in your own life, then you need to come down and, and make it right. Get it straightened out and make it right. Um, I, nobody's going to corner you, nobody's going to pick you out. One of the reasons that I think that we all need um, to be in prayer about this and we need to seek God about this. On behalf of people, because we can all say, I know somebody in my life that, um, that, that this, this is an issue. And then the third thing is, is pray that the church, um, and I'm not talking about just this church, but churches across our nation will start taking a stand uh, for this issue, a worldview against alcoholism. Let's pray. Let's go ahead and stand. And we'll pray.